0: Hello, this is Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio at freedomainradio.com. This is a test possible feature on foreign affairs with Alexander Ramarasanti, who runs LittleAlexinWonderland.wordpress.com, who has been a friend of Free Domain Radio for quite some time, and he was interested in doing some shows together on foreign affairs. So we took it for a test drive, and please let me know what you think at host at freedomainradio.com. This is our conversation. Now, um, as far as the Middle East stuff goes, I'm certainly I, I, I have um, done a little bit of work uh, in that area um, in, in the podcast uh, m- pretty, pretty long time ago, and I, I have it down as a topic I'd like to deal with, and uh, so I think your expertise in this area would be great. Um, I mean to me, it's, it's the worst elements of statism and the worst elements of religion combining. Right. And, yeah. and the thing that I'll give you my two cents on it and you can tell me whether it's anything you'd be interested in. I mean, the, the Palestinian view, which is why on earth have we been thrown out of our homes because Germans <laughs> killed Jews? You know, yeah. what on earth does that have? I mean, that's like locking up a guy in, in uh, uh, New Hampshire because some guy in Kansas stole a car. it makes no yeah. sense. Right. So uh, the Palestinian view, which is, you know, give them part of Germany, give them part of Brazil, I think, offered up some land. For Israel and so on. But of course, the uh, the Jews, or I should say the Jewish leadership at the time, you know, Ben-Gurion and so on, they all wanted to be in this particular spot. Why? Because of religious ideology, mm-hmm. right? Because of yeah. su- uh, superstition. And so, even though I wouldn't necessarily say that the best thing to do would be to carve off part of Germany and give it to the Jews, it certainly would have been a more just solution rather than making the Palestinians pay for what the Germans did, which of course is completely irrational and only makes sense in the crazy world of religious imperatives. So mm-hmm. these kinds of problems arise because of the irrationalities of certain aspects of religiosity, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, it, you can't solve the problem as long as the religious impulse is that strong within the region.
1: Um, well, and another point to add to that is that there's a, there's a difference between the orthodox the true hardcore Orthodox Jews and the political Zionists. I mean, the political Zionists are the cynics who um, yes, wanted Israel there for, you know, they have their little religious reasons that they'll say on television and whatnot. They'll say, this is a Jewish state, this is our holy land, we're the chosen people. Um, But it's also very convenient for these extremely powerful people, especially, I mean, you think back to 1948, uh, you're talking about the, basically, the center of the world. You're talking about a great trade route, and where Israel is located. That's an amazing trade route from uh, Southeast Asia, China, Russia, Europe to get to Africa and so forth. So that's, I mean, that's kind of the historical significance of that land. The Knights Templar uh, during the Crusades. They, you know, they privatized the roads and they were taxing people to use those roads and they were cashing in. And the Catholic Church didn't like it. You know. So, the Catholic Church went and they started beheading all the Templars. But why did the Templars want that piece of land? Because Israel, that land that we can now call Israel, that is kind of like that, that's kind of that X that marks the spot where every trade route goes through there. So, that is interesting.
0: I I didn't know that. So, sorry, go on.
1: I mean, if you just look at a map, you you see how rational it is to want to control that piece of land. You know, historically speaking, you know, we're thinking before. before the great advances that we have in, uh, you know, sea navigation. But still, I mean, if you're if you're traveling by road. But now, I mean, things are shipped in many different ways. But there is that historical significance there as well. And then uh, you have the oil question. You know, this is 1948 was a time when... Uh, that was kind of the beginning of the time when the oil conglomerates were... Using state power, using protectionist powers to basically prop up dictators in the Middle East. You know, I mean, uh, you've probably heard of that study shortly after 9 11. I mean, you've heard it probably a million times. You know, they always say, they hate us for our freedoms. They hate us for our freedoms. Well, yeah. I mean, you and I, we know that's not false. We know that that's false, right? I mean, they don't hate us for our freedoms, they hate us because we're there, you know? And uh, it always comes back to they hate us because we're there if you want to get real with it. If you really want to be real, if you actually want to pull the individual people, there's a pretty common consensus. The main reason why, quote-unquote, they hate us is because we prop up the dictators who oppress them. And a big part of that has been uh, using the state of Israel as a military base. It's a de facto military base. You know, just about, I mean, a lot of Israel-Palestine scholars can know, have gone into great depths about it, you know, but you can even just look at the, the foreign aid uh, numbers that go to Israel from the West uh, and from the lobbies. It's you know, it really has nothing. It has very little to do with Judaism. Uh, the propaganda has a lot to do with Judaism. Propaganda is a lot to do with Judaism. That's where that's where the religiosity comes in. You know, that's how it's sells. Right. But in but reality, sorry. Let me, sorry, let me ask difficult. you. Sorry.
0: Let me let me just ask you something. And, and I really do appreciate what you're saying. I think it's fantastic. I want I want you to keep going because this is great stuff. But when you say it doesn't have anything to do with Judaism, I mean I'm certainly aware that uh, uh, America wants its military partner in the region, right? And and that would be uh, obviously Israel, which gets you know billions of dollars of aid and and weapons uh, a year. But would you say that the average uh, Jew is sort of using the cynical cover of culture or religion or, you know, Judaism has these sort of, it's a three-headed monster, right? It's like, it's either culture or it's a race or it's a religion depending on what it is you want to achieve.
1: That's why I I say the religiosity is a propaganda tool. It's the most powerful propaganda tool they have. I mean, there was actually just a poll um, over the weekend. 51% of Israelis are in favor of attacking Iran. Like, right now. Like, right now they're in favor of attacking Iran right now. Why? There's no, you know, the only... Yeah, but
0: is that because, is that because, because, like, would you say that the average Jew is solidarity with my Jewish brethren, or is it, well, this is just a story we tell to the non-Jews so that we get what we want? I mean, to to what degree is the sort of cynical use of this kind of rhetoric, uh, to what degree does it go into the average Jewish community? Or is it mostly at the top, but the Jews underneath are saying, yes, I believe the rhetoric, not the geopolitical realities?
1: Um, my, my personal opinion from observation, I would say that people are, that individual people are taking down the Kool-Aid. They're taking down the Kool-Aid from the state leaders who have interests that have absolutely nothing to do with Judaism. But it's very easy to mask, uh, very easy to, uh, how do I say this? It's very easy to sell getting into a war with uh, that's going to risk your brothers and sisters if you use religion. It's very easy or, to sell
0: or uh, tribalism or whatever kind, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's it's just easier to sell that when you know when you have that moral authority of God. You say God, uh, God wants it this way, or you know, then then I mean, you can't even talk to those people and they start bringing up God, right? So it's, right. it's it's just a very effective propaganda tool for people, individual people, the population of. Israel, who who do have uh, very strong, you know, faith. Call it whatever it is, but in their heads, they make decisions based on that faith. But I don't think I have no reason to believe, I should say, that the political leaders are making decisions based on this same sort of mystical faith. Does that right. make any sense? That there's there's a separation between the classes. The classes are making decisions for different reasons. The political class right. is making decisions to keep themselves in power. The intellectual class is, of course, making decisions so they can keep getting funded by the political class, and then you have, you know, the sheeple. They're just taking in what the intellectual and political class feeds them. you
0: know, using whatever right. emotional,
1: emotional crutch they can to guide them in a certain direction.
0: Right, right, okay. That, now, that make sense? Uh, I... It makes it makes sense, and I, I obviously would not say this is specific to Judaism, but to all kinds of collectivism or tribalism or nationalism. I, so, I, right. I so, so that. why do the? So I just we're not picking on the Jews here. We're just looking at it in this context. So, why do the? I mean, the intellectual or the political leaders want to attack Iran uh, because I would imagine twofold. Right? A, it's perceived to be a threat uh, because of its toying with the nuclear question, and B, because uh, it has fantastic natural resources.
1: Uh, it depends on who you're talking. The political class.
0: Yeah. Like, it, wh- why do they class, want to? Uh, like, why are they trying to sell this war uh, uh, with Iraq?
1: The only, the only reason on paper, you know, I mean, you can again, they're gonna, they're gonna bring up mystical propaganda. You know, they're an existential threat. First off, Iran is not an existential threat. There's nothing to, there's nothing to prove that. Iran is an existential threat outside of rhetoric from, uh, the political class in Israel and the United States. There's no, you know, the international atomic energy agency has done snap inspections of Iran's facilities. I think it's 14 in the last six years. They've always come back with a clean bill of health. Roger Cohen from the New York times just interviewed the chief of the international atomic energy agency who said, uh, Iran wouldn't have a nuclear weapon you know, two to five years tops. But he also said that it would be insane, his words, insane, for Iran to develop a nuclear weapon. And that's for obvious reasons. If they develop a nuclear weapon, they're going to get bombed, right? Yeah, you know? I mean, yeah, you, I mean you they're, they're ruling, Iran,
0: their ruling class wants to stay in power as much as everyone else, and a nuclear weapon doesn't help them do that. So.
1: No, it, it, it obliterates them. Developing a nuclear weapon is suicide. And Ahmadinejad said over the weekend that having nukes would be, quote, politically retarded. So <laughs> you can throw that, that those are his words, politically retarded. So you can right. throw that existential threat out the window. So what else is left? A couple of years ago, this is around the axis of evil speech that George Bush let out. Um, Iran wanted to start selling oil on the euro and not the dollar. Every time a country wants to start selling uh, their oil on the euro and not the dollar, they become a terrorist uh, the state that sponsors terrorism, they become an enemy, they enter an axis of evil. That's what happened with Iraq, it, what happened with Venezuela, and uh, that's what happened with Iran.
0: Right, because it's Hussein only, was, uh, was switching, was, switching from, was, was contemplating switching from one to the other, which is considered to be one of the reasons behind uh, the invasion. Is that fair to say, or is that, I mean, I've heard that, I don't know the degree to which it's verified.
1: Again, it's the only, I mean, it's the only reason it makes sense, because we know weapons of mass destruction didn't exist, right? Oh, Yeah. Um, we know we don't give a crap about him killing his own people because he killed most of his people on the U.S. dime. And after he was killing those people, the U.S. kept rewarding him. Uh, with Oh, yeah, of course.
0: People. I mean, the, 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 he was used as the pawn against uh, Iran in the Iran-Iraq war in the 80s when the U.S. Yeah. was arming both sides. So, yeah, I, I think we can all understand that. And if people yeah, really so can, care about the health of the Right, right. Okay, go on.
1: I mean, yeah. I'm just saying when when I see that these reasons that come out of people's mouths are inconsistent, um, it's kind of it, it's kind of along the same reasoning that you use in in your UPB book. Um, it's it's a way that I approach a lot of foreign affairs, uh, you know, issues. When a world leader says we need to attack country X because they're doing Y, well, is this political leader doing why If they're doing why if it's wrong when x does it but not wrong when i do it then that can't be the real reason there has to be something else right right um right. because if Y is absolutely reprehensible why are you doing it or yeah which is which is, which better, is chomsky is, chomsky
0: makes this argument over and over again and it's perfectly oh, exactly. valid right and yeah it's,
1: yeah i mean it's it's probably that's actually where i uh he actually calls it his his form of uh international relation moral relativism uh, that's, right. that's, that's what chomsky says over and over again um, but I take that same approach with Iran, but to get to this, to get back to this Iran point, um, I mean, Iran isn't it's not an obedient Middle Eastern country. Obedient in that, I mean, Saudi Arabia is completely obedient. Right. And one of the most brutal dictatorships in the world, Saudi right. Arabia, but they let, uh, the Western oil companies come on in and do whatever they want. They, uh, They manipulate the prices and they manipulate the dollar a little bit, you know, because they're, they have to actually, they have to sell their oil on the dollar, right? And they set the prices, but that's where a lot of oil is coming from for the rest of the world. So they, they want to have oil being traded on the dollar. Now Iran has a lot of resources, just not very good oil. And the Saudi, the Saudi Royal family actually wants to jack up the price of oil up to back up to 75, $80. Venezuela wants to do the same thing. Venezuela has wanted to up to $100 the last couple of months. So Western oil companies are, they want cheap oil. They want cheap oil ASAP. But that can't happen if Iran's going to trade on the euro. Because when the oil, when it funnels through the euro, then, uh, then the euro gets, it, it, that makes a higher demand for the euro which of course, you know, demand when it comes to currencies, and you've studied a bit with, um, you know, Austrian theory, when demand raises for one currency, it lowers the demand of another because they're all relative to each other. Right. So if there's a reason, if there's a true reason for Iran, the only one that makes sense at all, the only one that is at all consistent, the only one that is uh, consistent with the actual nations involved with their interest, it would be the petrodollar.
0: Right. And you know what? Actually, sorry, what you're saying makes uh, it it illuminates something for me, which is great, which is that, you know, I've always had trouble understanding why the dollar hasn't fallen further than it has when the U.S. government has like 60 to 70 trillion dollars of unfunded liabilities and everyone gets that this deficit is lunatic and the system is unsustainable. Why does the dollar have any traction in the world market? And I think what you're saying, if I understand it, and correct me if, you're, if I'm not, if I've got it wrong, what you're saying is that the U.S. dollar is, is, regains or keeps some portion of its traction because it is the petrocurrency. currency. And if some of that were to switch to the euros, it, would, it could go into a kind of free fall. Is that what you mean?
1: It could go into a definite free fall. And uh, I mean, even China is pooling reserves with the Southeast Asian countries right now. Um, it said that Russia, uh, actually, Vladimir Putin at the Davos, there was a World Economic Summit in Davos, Switzerland, and I believe it was February. And Vladimir Putin made a long speech. You can find the transcript on the Wall Street Journal. But he was saying that uh, he suggested the world moving away from the dollar being the global currency. Um, he also suggested a gold standard. Huh. Which. Uh, Again, that kinda made me think, you know, yeah, that made me go, huh? You know, Vladimir Putin, this Mr. KGB is advocating a gold standard. But then I Well they've got some gold, right? They have uh, reportedly up to sixty percent of the world's gold is buried somewhere in Russia.
0: Right. I mean again, this
1: is you know, this is their national interest, but, but states are starting to realize that they can move away from the dollar. But if oil were taken away from the dollar, I mean what's what's
0: left? And this, of course, sorry, this also explains something else. Yeah, so this also explains something else for me, at least I think it does. And let me know if this is in the right ballpark. And the other question that I've sort of had is why the hell is China still borrowing US dollars when they know, even more so than many people in the US, what a financial basket case it is? And of course, China is a voracious consumer of oil and they need to borrow the US dollars in order to trade in petrocurrency. Is that part of what's driving that?
1: Uh, yes, yes and no. Well, a lot of what China does is they buy, yeah, they buy a lot of the T-bills to, um, to, you know, bring in oil. But one thing that China's been doing is they've been, uh, exchanging arms for cheap oil in Africa. I don't know if you've noticed, but there's been, uh, the massacres in Africa for the last five to 10 years have been pretty brutal. I mean, you have, a uh, Civil war in Congo that's been going on for I don't know I guess like twelve or thirteen years now. Something like six million people have died. Obviously, right. we've always we've heard about the Darfur, um, uh, the Darfur you know genocide, which has displaced something like what, three million people um, yeah. in Sudan. Well, Sudan is a big oil producer, and China's been trading them small arms. China and Russia actually has been trading uh, Sudan small arms for cheap oil for years and years and years I mean, there was an embargo and then a study came out last year that Russia and China were still trading, um, you know, small arms for oil. So these countries do, I mean, the only thing is that uh, China still has something like a 1.3 billion people. So they can't get right. all of their oil from Africa. I mean, they're still going to have to get it from, you know, places in the Middle East and Central Asia. So, so yeah, they do still need the dollar to
0: buy oil now but is there is there something else that's driving the um uh, i mean japan and china some of the two of the largest um creditors of the united states and and what is driving their decision making i I can't quite i mean i can't even come close to figuring that out because i don't have your training and expertise but what is driving them to continue to lend money to the u.s government i mean they can't imagine that they're going to get much of the interest let alone the principal back so what's what is that
1: I, I couldn't tell you. I mean, that's something for, you know, I mean, that's something that people speculate. Um, obviously the conspiracy, go, uh, take it a step further with the conspiracy, you know, speculations that you know, China wants to make, um, uh, the one, uh, Y U a N is so, up online. That's uh, the Chinese currency that they want that to be the global currency And, uh, that can happen if they buy enough. Sorry, you bills, said they
0: wanted that to be the gold, and I just missed that second word. The
1: uh, the global currency.
0: Global currency, yeah. Yeah, that
1: that all cur- or that all currencies in the world are based on the one.
0: Right.
1: As opposed to right now being based on the dollar. Um, but how is borrowing
0: of, the dollar? How does borrowing the dollar now? Obviously, if they if they sorry how does sorry lend
1: they they don't to the U.S. government? Dollars. They buy they buy treasury bonds. Right. Um, if they want to cash in those treasury bonds, well, there was a congressman that said on the, on the floor a couple of months ago the biggest nuclear threat, uh, the, or no, the, the greatest weapons of ma- weapon of mass destruction isn't uh, a potential bomb in Iran, it's a banknote in China. Because oh, yeah, China no, has cash that. in, if they just want to cash in and start cashing in those treasury bonds, well, then, you know, the U.S. is going to have to. I mean, they couldn't print their way, they couldn't print the money fast enough to pay it off. Um, Right. So the conspiracy theorists, you know, this is, again, this is what, and, you know, this has actually even entered the mainstream, that one day China wants to uh, sell their treasury bonds and the U.S. will say, well, we can't print the money for you, you know. And then China negotiates the, uh, the world currency being the one. And this isn't, right. you know, again, this isn't so fringe as it was. I mean, this is kind of fringe, and I always kind of, I took it with a grain of salt years ago when I would hear people say it, but the, uh, the Chinese premier has actually uh, voiced concerns lately. Publicly, it was in the New York Times uh, a couple of months ago that he was concerned with uh, America printing too much money. There was an article in Telegraph Today, um, China is concerned with the federal reserve printing too much money and they're, they're kind of poisoning the well. They're starting to poison the well on the U S dollar, which, uh, like you're saying, you know, you were saying why, why is why is China and Japan, why are they still even playing with the dollar? Why are they playing the game with the dollar when they can use, you know, other currencies, when they can boost up, you know, other currencies? Well, they are doing that. China's doing currency swaps with, uh, Argentina. I've told you the, uh, there's a the small arms for oil trading in Africa. Uh, they're pooling. They want to start pooling Southeast Asian reserves, all the islands, and all that. So uh, they can have you know just stronger reserves for. The, so they're so a dollar crash doesn't affect the crash of their currency. So these precautions are being taken. How long have been? You know, how long these plans have been? How long have these? Uh, these meetings been taking place. How long has this rhetoric existed? We, I mean, we really don't know. But now it's it's come into the mainstream. So, um, I mean, I don't know. Maybe in the end, the conspiracy theorists are right, and we see that China's motive uh, for buying so many U.S. Treasury bonds has been to uh, has been that they knew that it would fail, and that they would have to be they would be the knight in shining armor
0: right.
1: with their currency. So, I mean, that's, that's a very cynical point of view, but its I, I wouldn't
0: say it's incredible at all. Yeah, and I think it's important to remember that China looks upon, say, America as a young, retarded civilization, right, compared to the longevity of their own civilization. They, they just look at America as, you know, an idiot preteen, you know, <laughs> kind of thing, because it has not sustained itself relative to, you know, the length of the Chinese uh, uh yeah. culture and civilization. So I would not underestimate the Chinese overlords in terms of their intelligence and yeah. wisdom, uh, yeah, and yeah. cunning, I guess, in these, in these areas.
1: Well, the political class of China is, uh, I mean, it, it, you really can't compare it to too many other political classes. I mean, even you could probably then say the intellectual class as well, because, yeah. uh, Oh,
0: they're genius. Yeah. I mean, it's such a huge yeah, country to yeah. run. Well, yeah.
1: The UN since, since its inception, um, I know this was true as of 2007. I don't know. I had follow any of the awards that came out in 2008, but between, uh, between 1948 and 2007, China received the most public policy awards in the UN than any other country in the world. Is that right? Wow. So, uh, yeah, the international community definitely recognizes China's effective public policy. Effective toward what objectives? You know, that's up for speculation, you know?
0: But, right. Right. I
1: mean, if you can only really say, and of course we're libertarians, so we can, we can, we're going to make the assumption that with, if the objective is strengthening the power of the state, yeah, China's going to receive a lot of awards, right? <laughs> right. That's I mean, that's right. the only that's the only objective. I can that's the only standard I can see for basing these quote these awards. These very public, you know, these aren't you know, behind closed doors or anything. These are public awards given out of the UN. So.
0: Well, I think, yeah, uh, you I mean, know, China's one day...
1: Well. Yeah. The eyes of the state well, China has done very well.
0: Yeah, and, uh, you know, the, the UN is not going to be impressed by basic things like one day of the economic engine growth based on mostly liberalized cha- trade. One day of China and India's economic growth lifts more people out of policy than the entire 40-year history of the welfare state, right? So uh, that's, that, to me, is an enormously impressive thing that these, yeah. uh, these states have done. Definitely. Or as we would say, not done, right, which is to not interfere not with yeah, the natural. Yeah, yeah. Taking,
1: taking a step back and allowing uh, allowing for a, some sort of some sort of spontaneous order to develop. I mean, obviously, I'm Indian, actually, but uh, mm-hmm. and I've I've been there many times, and my my grandparents, everyone everyone in my family who who was born there, grew up there, will say that they would much rather live there now than you know, 40, 50 years ago.
0: Oh, so, absolutely.
1: And it's still, it's still, you know, it's still a very centralized state. But one difference with India and China, though, um, is that India has a bit more uh, state power as opposed to federal power and relative to China. Uh, yeah. Um, there's, there's a bit more power in the states. Of course, China is completely centralized. Um, right. Which allows well, like, for-
0: India evolved out of principalities, right? So it's going to have more yeah. localized... A more localized history.
1: Well, you still have, you know, anarchic villages, so to speak, in, in India that are, you know, you know, stateless. I guess I should say that, you know, not not so much stateless on paper, but no one bothers them at a thing. Right. You know, right. You know just, just villages where. Uh, I mean, that's actually the the village where I'm from is like that. I mean, you don't have. Uh, there are no like governmental forces that come in and neighboring village, of course, you know, the elders are the clerics. So they don't really, uh, crazy, you know, religious and Sharia law type of, uh, type of sector. It's just, they're, they're just, I guess you call them cooperatives. Um, I guess the Western, they'd be similar to like communes or cooperatives, right. know, except uh, the state doesn't really get into their mess. But you have, right. you know, right. so you do have diverse, diverse economic structures, diverse forms of levels of urbanization, in India and some of which are voluntary, some of which are not. I mean, just like any any time a state quote unquote liberalizes the economy, you do have public private partnerships that um that step on the poor. So oh, those, yeah, ob- yeah. those obviously exist as well. Um, right, but that's right. a big part of state power. When they have those it's it's very convenient that when the state quote unquote liberalizes the economy they still have to have that partnership with the, with the private sector that they're, you know, quote, giving power to or whatever. You know, it's, yeah, well, if you want to keep it, you got to lobby to us. Otherwise, we're going to take it away.
0: Oh, you sure, yeah. Us, you
1: know, first of all, first and foremost, you have to keep us happy. I mean, Venezuela, the only, the only difference really between Hugo Chavez and a lot of these other despots is he just does it outright. You know, if the <laughs> right. if if private industry doesn't want to kiss his ass, he just takes it away. It's, right. You know, he's, he's putting pressure on a private media company right now. He just uh, just nationalized, I think, the third biggest bank in Venezuela. Um, yeah, so it's, you know, it's kiss my ass or I'm just going to take it all. Otherwise, you know, it's kiss our ass or we're going to tax you for something, some little business practice that you do. And then, of course, the smaller businesses that, Use these same practices. There's nothing immoral about them. They're just going to get wiped out because they can't cover the
0: overhead. Right, right. Now let me ask you something else, and I don't want to take your your whole day up, uh, but I, you're a, a very good uh, fount of wisdom and knowledge in these areas. If you had to put your prognosticator's hat on and uh, look at the next five to ten years of the U.S. occupation of Iraq, uh, what do you think? Uh, what do you think you would see?
1: That's. Uh Iraq is a real clusterfuck. You
0: know, I, mean, <laughs> right. it, I mean, I love it when you it, use these technical Latin terms. <laughs> <laughs>
1: it, it, it is. It's, it's an entire clusterfuck. I mean, you don't. There's so many factions within Iraq, and it's not just the tribes, the Sunnis, the Shias. You have your country people, you have your city people, you have your oil people. You have just like any other country. You know, there are a lot of different factions, many different interests among many different groups of people, among many different individuals within those those groups and add on top of that an occupier you know i mean how do you predict that you know i mean will he, if you're asking will the occupation still be there you know will the u.s occupation still exist i don't see why it wouldn't exist and as long as well, yeah, 10, ten there, years
0: they're still going to be there i mean they're building these monster permanent bases i mean they're still in japan 60 plus years exactly. after the conquest they're still well, in yeah. germany sixty plus years well, after they're still gonna be there. They're like they're like burrs. They're like sticky things, right? You know, they they you know, you can you can invite them in, but you can't boy, well, they won't even invite it in, but you just can't get them out once they're in.
1: Well this is this is kinda of, this kind of goes into my point. I mean if the occupation as long as the occupation exists, there's going to be animosity. Um take North North Korea, for example. Um, North Korea just did a conducted some nuclear test underground North Korea isn't going to attack anyone with a nuclear weapon. They have something uh, like 10 to 15. Those are the, uh, those are the very liberal estimates of uh, North Korea's nuclear arsenal. But why is it a big deal? Or to ask a better question, why, is, why does North Korea give a crap about having a nuclear weapon at all? It's because the U.S. is occupying bases in South Korea. So as long as there's an occupation in Iraq, you're going to have some jingoistic rhetoric and jingoistic research programs, jingoistic looking research programs out of the neighboring countries because they're going to be threatened. And within the country itself, you're going to have villages up in arms. You're going to have militias develop. You're going to have political factions who want to overthrow the ones who are enabling the occupiers. So as long as that occupation exists, you're going to have turmoil. It's it's difficult for... Even grasp it a lot of times because, you know, you're I'm in the U.S. We don't live with occupiers, you know. But well, I can imagine not, there not foreign
0: occupiers people. at well,
1: least. I know, yeah, they're there domestic occupiers. <laughs> right. but there you know, I mean, there's resistance to domestic occupiers. There's always going to be resistance to domestic occupiers. Imagine foreign occupiers. So to really, you know, put on a prognosticating hat, it's. It really depends on how people react to the occupation, and I don't see how it can be good.
0: Yeah, I think, I mean, the one thing that I've noticed with, one of the things that I've noticed with statism is that when you put a violent structure around any particular problem, what happens is you kind of freeze it in time, right? So Mm -hmm. uh, to take a silly example, but it's actually quite relevant, uh, a public education um, was taken over by the government in sort of the mid to late 19th century throughout most of the West, and then it kind of froze in time, right? So you got, yeah. you got know, people with 40 kids in a classroom, a, a, a chalkboard, and chalk, and that's how they instructed the mid to late 19th century. Fast forward 100, 120 years, they're still doing it the same way despite the immense changes in everything else. And, and uh, despite what happens, many,
1: many demands for better education.
0: Right, right. And if you look at uh, um, what's happened with the welfare state, right? I mean, the number of poor people were declining until the welfare state came in, and then it it froze, right? Just got stuck there. Because it's like a a, a time stop spell in some old Dungeons and Dragons metaphor, right? It's like a time stop spell. What happens is things just freeze, right? And so if you look at religiosity in the Soviet Union it was declining up until the R- Russian Revolution of 1917 and then it just kind of froze it didn't get better It yeah. didn't really get worse it just kinda of went underground and then when the when the violence is taken away everything just kinda of starts again you know <laughs> it's like the sleeping beauty yeah. thing you know yeah. it goes to sleep and,
1: then, are, and, and regarding Iraq you kinda of articulate my point a lot better when you say there's going to be a war on something whether it's a war on illiteracy a war on drugs a war on crime you're just going to either create more drugs, crime, uh, terrorism, um, illiteracy, or it's just going to stand still.
0: It's yeah, just, you can't, the the you can't wage from. a war on an adjective, right? It's not like you're shooting a dictionary. Right? It's only, there's only ever a war on people, right? I love these, all these metaphors, yeah, right? It's,
1: it's always a war on people and not even an adjective. I mean, drugs. Just take drugs. That's a, you know, that's a physical object. You want to you know, destroy the world of drugs. Well, we know that's false. You can't, you can't do it. B, as long as you try to do it, there are going to be organizations that understand it's very profitable to uh, try to get away with it. Right. The black market. So anytime, anytime there's a war on something, so as long as the, that's why I said, as long as the occupation exists, you're going to see, uh, you're going to see death and destruction. Because...
0: Right, that's and that's I, think, I think it's going to... Yeah, and I think, so I think if we look sort of, if I would put my little hat on, right? You're more cautious because you're more knowledgeable. <laughs> I just put my hat on anywhere. Right? But, um, you, you have enough knowledge to know that it's more complex than I think it is. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, the, to, to me, the, the, probably the most accurate answer is that it's going to be pretty much the same in 10 years as it is now because uh, society stops when uh, a, a huge blanket of force descends upon it. Uh, everything becomes so claustrophobic and constipated that there is no natural progress uh, or it's like it's like expecting uh, animals in a zoo to evolve, right? They just don't because there's no yeah. the the whole the whole impetus for evolution has is not present because everything's so controlled in the environment. Yeah. So I think it's just it's just it's like a freeze time, uh, and it's going to be pretty much the same in 10 years and in 50 years or until it stops, right? Yeah. I mean, India. Sorry. Just, I mean, the other example would be that India under the uh, rule of the British under the Raj. Uh, the Indian st- the standard of living for the a- average Indian for the hundred years uh, up until independence was almost the same and declined a little bit. There was no progress
1: nope. on the
0: economic sphere for the average nope. Indian because everything just gets frozen in time when you get this big blanket of force over a country.
1: Well, in the Indian Revolution, which is why I don't completely rule out the possibility of, um, you know, like I said with Iraq, I mean, who, who really knows? You know, we want to prognosticate. I mean, who really knows? But... The Indian Revolution is, a, is an extremely unique revolution. It's an extremely unique revolution where people just decide to stop working for um, their dustbin. I mean, you'd say they created another state and started working for that despot, but they wanted the British out of there They stopped working for them. It
0: was like and they've a, done it was like better since the British are gone,
1: right? Yeah, definitely. They went from, you know, kind of an absolute slavery to just, they just stopped working for the Bostons. So that's, right. that was a, and, and it worked. Eureka, the yeah, no, they've made they've war. made great
0: progress. Uh, made great progress since since dumping the Brits. But and and this, of course, is is what I think is going to be different with the United States. I mean, the argument could be made, and I think it's a pretty good argument, though I'm not saying it's conclusive. The argument could be made that the reason why India was able to do what it did was because England, you know, broke itself in two during the first and second world wars and and lacked mm-hmm. the martial will and the resources to continue to dominate an empire. And of course, if the American dollar, which fuels, uh, you know, it is the petrodollar, but in many ways it's also the dollar of international arms trade, uh, when, if the American dollar goes into a free fall as a result of uh, a, a lack of funding from other governments, then the iron grip of the American dictatorships around the world will inevitably relax significantly in the same way that, uh, you know, the, the French, the British, the Germans, the, you know, the, um, the, the Dutch, ball. right? They, they, so when, when the, the domestic economy is broken, as is the case with Russia in Afghanistan in the 80s, when the domestic economy breaks, uh, the, the rule of violence localizes itself where it's usually there, there's some better chance of progress. And uh, so I think that that could occur if the U.S. – I mean, that's the big variable, uh, I think, which yeah. will occur in Iraq is if the U.S. dollar breaks or the U.S. economy breaks, which, of course, is the goal of Al-Qaeda, it's what they're doing, it's why they're doing what they're doing, then uh, there will be a change in Iraq uh, and things will start up again. About the, occupation,
1: from the occupation would be unaffordable. I mean, it would be impossible.
0: Right. 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 Imperialism yeah. is, is a net negative except for certain small sectors, right? Yeah.
1: But uh, I, I'm actually going to uh, get going to a neighbor's barbecue in a minute.
0: All right. Well, listen, I, I appreciate the uh, conversation. I found it I found it very interesting. Is this the kind of thing that you would like to? Uh, is this is this the kind of thing that you were talking about?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And you know, anytime you want to, you know, do a segment on a certain issue, you can just send me an email on um, on the issue, and you know, we could set a time like within you know, 24 hours of that email or whatever, and.
0: Uh, have a Wait, you're assuming it. the shows are going to be less than 24 hours long, but I think we can assume that. Um, <laughs> but uh, listen, can you get, uh, uh, and I'm happy to send, the, send you the PayPal for it if you don't have, have it or have the money. If you could get a webcam, uh, then uh, I have a sort of dual screen recording software that okay. allows yeah, us I just need to, to pick up that. a new
1: one. Mine just crapped out on me, uh, it was like earlier, this, earlier last week or something.
0: Okay, we'll get one of those, and um, okay. uh, let's uh, uh, have a conversation that way uh, so that we can also post it as a video because uh, that's quite a popular way of getting uh, this do, kind yeah. of information out as well. Okay. All right. All right. Okay. Well, have a great have barbecue, man. Thanks for the chat. Nice yeah, chatting thanks. with you, too. I appreciate it. All right. Bye. Great talking
1: with you, Stephen. Bye.